My favorite quote about leadership is that leadership is disappointing people at a rate they can manage. <laughs> and I'm putting that to the test today by telling you that I am one of those people who every few years remembers that there is a global sport called soccer. <laughs> and that this is the biggest sport in the world. And I remember playing at a young age and, and then now I will occasionally tune in and, and watch and realize I have no idea what's going on. It's incredibly complicated. But there, I was t turned on to a show about soccer that is, uh, it, it explains a lot of things about how soccer works. And it's called Welcome to Wrexham. And this is a show about uh, the English Premier League, which is the biggest soccer league in uh, the UK. And uh, it has this whole incredibly complex ranking system that the Premier League is the top, but then depending on whether you win or lose, you go up or down in the rankings. And so this story follows a team that's at the bottom of the ladder in Premier League soccer. And it follows the story of two celebrities, or at least one genuine celebrity, <laughs> Ryan Reynolds, and, and who, you know, is incredibly... Uh, he's been voted a certain category of person before, uh, and people know who he is. Uh, and then there's the other guy with him, uh, who's the semi-recognizable and highly photoshopped uh, Rob McElhaney, who you may or probably don't know from uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And they decide to buy uh, this football club and try, uh, that's at the bottom of the league, and try and infuse it with hope and lots of cash and try to return it to its previous era of, of glory and return it to the Premier League. And it tracks all of their uh, learning about how soccer works. And this, in this town of, of Wrexham, which is this out-of-the-way uh, sort of post-industrial town in Wales, uh, and it's, it's, a, it's a really cool story of, of the history of this place and of soccer and uh, I, I, it's uh, not for everyone, but it's uh, interesting. It's a, it, I, I consider it a bit of research, you know, to be able to know what's going on. <laughs> as, I, as I watched, um, I, I've taken particular interest in the people who live in this town and who root for this football club. And I've realized that I see myself in them, and I see us in them. Because when these two celebrities come and take notice of their town and of their club and desire to return it to glory, there is this massive infusion of hope and energy and possibility about what it could mean and what it could look like and what it would do for them. And I realize that we're all like Wrexham football club supporters. We are all looking in one way or another to someone to come from outside with the resources that we need to infuse our lives with promise, to give us hope and peace and love and joy in the ways that we are longing for. In other words, we are looking 
for someone to deliver us, someone to rescue us, someone to take us to a place that we cannot go on our own. This is what the Christian season of Advent is all about. And these are what the stories that we're looking at through the prophet Isaiah have come to teach us. And we're calling it getting to the point because Isaiah is a long book of poems and prophecies and all sorts of really fascinating things that are all pointing the way to Jesus. And Isaiah helps us understand in reading Isaiah and reading these passages like the one that Charlotte just read, it also helps us to realize the point of our lives and the point of the Bible itself, which is to point us to Jesus, who is the one who, as Isaiah's name bears witness to, is God to the rescue. And so this season of Advent, though, is, is one where we tune into this story. The church has its own way of keeping time, its own four seasons, its own calendar, its own way of understanding when we are in time. And it's called the church calendar. And these four seasons begin with Advent. And Advent is where we remember that God is with us. And then as we listen to and learn from these stories from Isaiah about the ways in which God is with us, which culminates ultimately in Christmas and the birth of Jesus of Nazareth in flesh and blood, in history, in time and space, God in a bod, it's the real deal. Then that moves us, as we grow with Jesus into the season of Lent, which is where we realize that not only God is with us, but God is also for us. God is on our side. God wills your best and your flourishing, and God wants to rescue you and me. God is for us. Amen. That's what we learn in Lent, culminating on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, that death itself, the, God's greatest enemy, has been overcome in Jesus of Nazareth. And then in Pentecost, we learn as the Spirit of God descends among the people of God, that not only God is with us and that God is for us, but it gets even better that God is in us, that God is as immediately accessible and available to us as our next breath. And the radical, scandalous claim that not only is God in me, but God is in you, and God is in we. <laughs> and then we learn through this season that often gets overlooked called ordinary time. God is with us. God is for us. God is in us. But God also works through us to bring this message of hope and healing and reconciliation and renewal to the world. That we, the point is that we get to participate in the point of the story and our lives begin to point out Jesus himself at work in the world. But we are engaging and entering into this season of Advent. We're two weeks in, and the season where we are building and waiting, anticipating the hope of what it means for God to come to our rescue. And the way that we understand time as followers 
of Jesus in this season of waiting and of anticipation is less like charbroiling a burger, something that happens very quickly with lots and lots of heat and intensity. It's something that we as Americans love. We love speed. We love quick, quick uh, results, and, and we love things to happen now. We, like, we live at charbroil speed. <laughs> but Advent, Advent, my friends, is more like smoking a brisket. It's something that happens slowly and deliberately with patience, with trust, with hope that the seasonings and, and, and seasons of life will ultimately produce a feast in the world of God's goodness and love. Advent is a season of hope, that we hope, we hope against hope that God will be with us. And Isaiah is the prophet of hope, the prophet par excellence of hope. And in this passage that we've read, it is full of this vision of peace on earth. This radical, unbelievable, too good to be true almost vision of what is possible when God comes among us to bring life in the midst of death, to bring peace in a time of war and strife. It's this vision of old hostilities being laid down. And this vision of one who is going to come and inaugurate and administrate this rule and this reign of peace on earth. But as I was smoking the brisket of this text this week, I couldn't get past a word in the first verse. That this vision of hope and of peace begins with a stump. It starts in a stump, the stump of Jesse. And Isaiah makes ground zero of this vision of fresh, new hope and possibility. It emerges and begins in this place of death, of life being cut off and severed from its source. Something completely lifeless and meaningless, something ultimately hopeless. When we look at a stump such as this, we don't expect anything to come from it. We don't expect it to be bearing fruit. And what Isaiah is getting at here, he's, he's not just talking about any old stump, he's talking about the stump of Jesse, which is a poetic way of talking about the family tree that David, King David, the, the, the greatest king of Israel's story, Merges from. Jesse is King David's father. And the time that Isaiah is having uh, these, these prophetic, sort of political and religious visions of what God is doing in the world, 
this, this dynasty that began with King David and, and moved forward from his son Solomon onward has ultimately ended in idolatry and injustice. The very person who's responsible in the midst of a kingdom whose sole intent is to show the world what it looks like when God is king. How do a people live under the lordship of God? How do people trust in their relationships, in practical, real, like as real as foreign policy and as real as our bank accounts? How do we trust that God is in charge? What does that look like? And these people who are responsible for drawing the people of God into this vision have become ones who tried to play empire and kingdom building like everyone and anyone else. And so they've waged war and they've, uh, they've started building a temple using slave labor. These former slaves who the God of Israel rescues from slavery and says, never go back to that and don't become like that, become like that. They build a temple out of slave labor. And so Isaiah's vision in, in chap, that we read here in chapter 11 begins in, in chapter 6 and in 9, and it's this vision of these kingdoms of the earth growing up like trees, these dynasties, these family trees, these, these empires that have grown up, Israel included. And then Isaiah imagines God going full Paul Bunyan on these trees, picking up an axe and laying the axe to the root of all of these trees, Israel included. It's this vision of judgment and of justice. Because in, if God is to bring about a reign of peace and justice, there can be nothing in that that contributes to injustice and idolatry. And so God has to clear the way. He has to remove the cancerous growth. And he has to redirect Israel's hopes. Israel literally found themselves in a moment where their, their nation had been divided and this promised eternal reign of kings comes to an end. And they find themselves, quite literally, if you'll forgive the pun, stumped. And here's what I know about my life, and here's what I know about you, that you've been stumped. That you've dashed. That you've had a of what your future was going to look like, ideally at least. And that's been cut off. And I'm not meaning to imply that that is explicitly God's doing. But we all know what it means to be stumped, to be without answers, to be so certain that things were going to move in a particular direction, in a particular way, and so hopeful that things would turn out as we desire them to be, and then to have that cut off at the knees. It's this gut-wrenching, gut-dropping moment where we realize that maybe things aren't going to work out, where maybe 
the best thing that we can do is to adopt the maxim of Alexander Pope, who says that blessed is the one who expects nothing, for they will never be disappointed. And so when we're stumped, we become like the stumps, or we see other people as stumps, or we see the church as a stump, something that we don't really expect anything life-giving to come out of. And it's better to just leave the bar of our expectations on the ground so at least we can step over it and not be hamstrung by it. It's super easy for us to just give up on hope or to give in to the temptation to misplace that hope, to give it to someone who ultimately cannot bear up under the weight of that hope whether that's our children, maybe they'll get into that school that we ourselves couldn't get into. Maybe it's our retirement account that during inflation and a recession and we don't know what's going on, we just hope it's going to be there at the level that we expected it to be. Maybe it's political leaders who I know I can't make this sort of contribution, but maybe they can on my behalf, bring about a reign of justice and peace in the world for us. We outsource our hope to people and places and institutions that ultimately cannot bear up under the weight of it. And so we find ourselves stumped, and, and Advent begins here at the stump. And any true vision of hope or peace or love or joy has to begin with the realities of our everyday real-life experiences of loss, of being cut off, or we're just thinking wishfully. It has to be able to carry our pain, otherwise we're just trying to put a band-aid over the top of it. But the hope that comes in Jesus through this story in Isaiah is one that meets us where we really are, which is hopeless when it really comes down to it, whether given our own expectations or abilities, God comes. And, but it doesn't end here. This is really where hope ultimately and truly begins because, again, in verse 1, there is a stump, but something remarkable is happening. A shoot, a little sliver of life, a little bit of green is emerging from the center of this lifeless stump. The promise of Isaiah is, yes, God has cut off this thing, but God is doing something new. God is going to be, be faithful to what God has promised, but it's going to look completely different than anything you expected. And so Isaiah's vision for the people of God in this moment is that there is hope. There would be one who would come from this line, who would inaugurate, who would be a part of bringing about God's reign of justice and peace and hope in the world. Don't give up hope, Isaiah is saying. A shoot is coming. And the shoot is going to grow up into a branch that is going to 
like a, a candlelight. We only have four, but in the center of the temple was a menorah that had seven branches that carried seven lights, seven candles with seven lights. And this person, this king, has a sevenfold uh, dispensing of the Spirit of God on him. And this, Isaiah's vision is of a perfect ruler, a perfect king, one who would not give in to the temptation of idolatry and injustice. And this perfect ruler who would rule with wisdom and would discern with fairness for the fate of the poor who had been so hamstrung by the rich. This perfect ruler would inaugurate, would begin a kingdom of perfect peace. This perfect ruler would inaugurate a peaceable kingdom that is the restoration, if, we, if you've ever tracked with the story of the Bible, it's the restoration, the bringing back together of this vision of Eden, where this vision of shalom, where everything is in its right place, in re- right relationship, and at the right time, all of these relationships are back in their proper order, and this perfect ruler is going to establish this peaceable kingdom, and that you and I are going to get to participate in what this looks like, that we ourselves have a seat at the table where the lion and the lamb have given up their devouring of each other. Well, that really only works one way. (laughs) And so we hear this promise, this vision, that, that Isaiah actually uses the words will, like this will happen. This is like certain hope. This is going to happen. Isaiah uses the word will 23 times in these 10 verses, like this will happen, 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 this will happen. And you're like, whoa, this is incredible, but we're sitting on a stump. Where? (laughs) Where is this vision, Isaiah? Why hasn't it come about yet? We're looking at the stump, and maybe, maybe, just maybe, we can see a little bit of a green shoot coming out, but it's fragile, and it's delicate, and we're trying to be realistic and honest about when we look out into the world what we actually and truly see. But we have to remember that we're looking with Isaiah, And Isaiah's prophetic vision is trifocal. And some of you will know what this means. Trifocal glasses have three areas of focus. The first is near, the second is intermediate, and the third is distant. Isaiah's prophetic vision is trifocal in the sense that what he's seeing, what God is saying in and through him for the people of God, is that a king is coming in the immediate future who's going to restore the kingdom. And this was the king Hezekiah. And there was a moment of promise as you read the story. You're like, oh my gosh, this, this is like David 2.0. This is actually going to happen. And then, boom, stumped. But Isaiah's vision expands. And when we look in the intermediate distance, we see that, oh, actually, <laughs> actually, Isaiah was talking about Jesus. Jesus is the perfect ruler come to establish the peaceable 
kingdom. And so he comes and gathers his people and teaches the way of the kingdom and gives instruction and direction of what it's going to look like and begins, we begin to see this vision actually playing itself out. That Roman centurions and, and, and Jewish zealots are coming together in this peaceable understanding with Jesus at the center, but then again, it's cut off. Jesus crucified. But then with the resurrection and ascension and the, the sending of the Spirit and the promise of Jesus to return, we see, oh wait, <laughs> that there is another vision in the distance, that Jesus is going to return to establish in fullness what he inaugurated in the past. And that we here and now live in this now but not yet reality where we get to experience what Jesus, what Isaiah has promised, has come to be real in and through Jesus. We can live under the guidance and the direction of the perfect ruler here and now. When you submit your life to Jesus, you get all of Jesus right now. And Jesus can guide and direct your life with wisdom and expertise as the one who created you and the one who designed you for a particular purpose to carry out his kingdom into the ends of this world. And until that comes about in its fullness, we get to live in it now. But the promise is that day will come, and that is our hope. And we do not give up here and now on that hope that is in the future when what is happening in the present tries to steal that away. Because what the promise of Isaiah wants to say is that hope isn't some idea, but that hope is a person. And hope has a name, and hope's name is Jesus. And you can reach out and be held yourself when you feel hopeless. You can be held by Jesus. One way of thinking about it is like this. Hope is the gospel made imminent incarnate and certain. It is the experience of God's redemptive engagement in human history in a most intimate, vulnerable, and meaningful way. You see, hope isn't an idea. Do you hear these words? Engagement, vulnerability, intimacy, incarnation. Hope is made flesh and blood among us as we look and live together in the way of Jesus. He continues, Mark Young, Hope is the personal and communal experience of the gospel of redemption that lies at the center of Christian theology. In other words, if we're not looking to Jesus, then we won't have hope. Our hope will be dashed. But if we hold on to Jesus, we have hope here and now in our present moment that will continue to carry us into the future. Amen. The promise of Advent and the promise of that we, will, that we are turning to now in this meal of communion, my sisters and brothers, is this, that God will provide hope for you where life has said nope to you. In all of the places where you have experienced being stumped, where life has pulled something away from you. Maybe not life, maybe it's death has pulled something away from you. God says, hold on to me. Look to the manger and you will see hope being born again among us.
And you see, my sisters and brothers, we come to this meal, this communion meal, with a little more sight than Isaiah had. Because we ourselves see that this, that this branch that emerges out of the stump of Jesse would grow into the shape of a cross. And again, God would provide, as Dr. King would say, God makes a way out of no way. And in the face of death and despair, God provides hope. 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 And this wood, before it comes across, would also form a manger. And Jesus is born into this manger where animals eat. In other words, my sisters and brothers, Advent is the promise that the bread of life, the bread of hope, is born among us for us to feast upon. And so we come to this table that Jesus has set before us, this meal that comes to us by grace through faith. And we come asking for more hope, for God to do something new in us and for God to do something new through us. Because on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his friends around him, fulfilling what Isaiah envisions in verse 10 here, the nations gathering around Jesus. And he takes a loaf of bread and he gives thanks for it and he blesses it and he breaks it. And he said, this is my body, the bread of life given for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of the fruit of the vine and he gave thanks for it and he blessed it and he poured it out This is a new covenant shed in my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And every time you take this bread and you drink this cup, you renew your hope in my imminent return among you. You focus your attention on my presence with you wherever you are feeling hopeless. I will provide you with sustenance for the journey. So friends, in front of you, you have a set of communion. It should be in front of you or near you. And I invite you now to rip off the top layer to remove the wafer. If you have questions about what this meal is or means, I invite you to come talk to me after. But friends, take the wafer, and this is the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat. Then grab the purple tab, peel that back to reveal the grape juice. Friends, this is the cup of the new covenant promise. 
that if you need a renewal of your hope today, take and drink the body, the blood of Christ shed for you. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, renew our vision of the possibilities of peace. Peace in us, peace among us, and peace through us. May you renew our hope that this type of peace is not only available, but is possible. And not only possible, but is a guarantee. Help us to taste and see now in this present moment the possibilities of what our lives could be surrendered to your will and your ways for the sake of our neighbors. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.